this morning, we recognize together that this issue that the text we look at addresses is one, Lord, that um, is bound up with an awful lot of complexity. And this passage that we look at is so rich with everything that we need in order to see this happen in the life of the church. And I just pray, God, that you give us the wisdom to focus on what it is that can truly accomplish this work. I pray that you'd help me to use great care in my words as we address it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If we could only choose one word, one word, to describe our current cultural climate, right? So both socially, politically, in the United States. I think a pretty, I think a pretty good case could be made for the word polarization. And Ben alluded to it in his prayer too, right? It's, it's a difficult problem. It appears to be progressing rapidly on both sides of the divide, both, especially the extreme sides. Areas of commonality in Western culture are really shrinking, and, and even good faith disagreements are few and far between. That is to say, you know, it used to be the case. You could disagree, right? So even on disagreements, you could disagree and yet give respect, humility, right? Um, certain amount of cordial disagreement, good terms, but now to disagree is to either be a complete idiot or to have an opponent who's a complete idiot, or some measure of the two happening simultaneously, okay? And I have to say, this is true on all sides of the divide, all right? All extreme sides, you know? Um, we're going to talk a little bit about why that's the case, but there's this, there's this divide in the United States culturally that you can actually see and experience on varying social media platforms, some of which trend toward, like, more progressive liberal content, and others are like set up and established as a conservative alternative to the liberal social media. And on both of these, you know, um, both platforms, there's this commonality. Like if you really engage there, if you read what's said, if you read the comments section, what you come to find is this sneering, condescending vibe of, look how right I am. Look how right I am. Look how much I've figured out. And look how backwards, thoughtless, careless, and void of all apparent intellect all of my opponents are, right? Good on me and do better, right? The, the, the hashtag do better um, kind of dominating the discussion. That's the tone of the discussion. And, you know, that's also, it's also a tone that I think threatens the church, threatens to creep into the life of the church. This kind of sneering, condescending tone. And yet... As we continue to read Ephesians, the church of Christ is meant to stand out like a beacon of light. Like, I think it's helpful at the front end to recognize that Christians believe, because of what the scriptures say, Christians believe that the gospel of Christ creates a, count, a Christian counterculture for the church, for the life of the church, in which we're, we run counter to culture, right? Many voices, I think, in the progressive Christian stream, which I think oftentimes actually run outside the bounds of Orthodox Christianity. Nevertheless, many voices argue really for, a, for no, more, um, no more cultural clash. There, there's this idea that um, no more should the church be counter to culture, 
but rather we should come more and more into line with surrounding culture. And, and yet this morning in our text we see in Ephesians, we see an example of Christian counterculture. The church of Christ is meant to stand out in a world that operates in this way. The Christian church is built upon, listen, all these various identities that Ben talked about even in his prayer, that he prayed in his prayer, that we tend to like primarily associate with, that then leads us to these like, that kind of sneering condescension, that tone that's so prideful and disruptive, right? Um, the church is built on a radically different identity, a different foundation, one true foundation that actually changes everything about what we look like in comparison to the watching world. But listen to me, listen to me. So it changes everything, but the way it changes us matters. And we'll, you know, as we'll see, if you, if you misunderstand the truth of this gospel that Paul proclaims here in Ephesians, you're going to end up building something, even like out of, from your best intentions, you'll end up building something that just further breeds hatred and sneering and disunity. So the question becomes this morning, why is it, let's ask why, like why is it that the church of Jesus Christ should look very different from the rest of the world related to this problem, you know? Like what, what is it that Jesus has done that actually fundamentally changes the way that Christians interact together? The way that we treat one another. The way that we can find unity together. And this is important because I think our temptation is to see an issue that needs to be addressed. All right, whatever the issue is, let's say this morning, racism, racial pride, racial, racial tension, because I don't, I don't know another way to put it. This is a direct application point of the passage this morning. It just is. It's, an, it's a direct implication. And we see, you know, so we see this problem, racial pride, racial tension, racism. And then we see in the scriptures what things should look like instead, reconciliation, peace. So we prime, what, what do we do? We primarily attempt, attempt to deal with this problem by working very hard to like, you know, pull up our bootstraps surrounding this, this positive solution. We want to write more law. Like, this is what you should be doing. And if there's some problem, it's because you're not working hard enough. Do better. You know? So our primary mode of disciple making becomes moralistic in nature, you know, it's either that the gospel of Jesus Christ simply gets you into the kingdom, like it gets, the gospel gets you across the starting line into the Christian race, but then man, it's really up to you to work really hard and white knuckle it and um, become spiritually disciplined in your Christian growth, your sanctification is really up to you, or it's that you confuse the gospel with the good works that the scriptures call us to, to the point where you actually think the gospel is good works. And your approach in either of these cases is to primarily focus on the good work that needs to be done rather than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just primarily focus on working really hard toward racial reconciliation. You know, talk endlessly about racial reconciliation. You know, primarily focus on working really hard to righting injustices. Talk endlessly to righting injustices and then you'll see injustices Rided. Primarily focus on working really hard to overcome whatever the problem is. Talk endlessly about overcoming the problem, to do the good work, whatever it is. But on the opposite side of things, others might just argue, kind of throw up their hands. Say, hey, grace abounds, so it doesn't really matter how you treat one another. It doesn't really matter if the people of God are reconciled or not. Don't be concerned about reconciliation. Reconciliation isn't a category we should worry about. But as we see in the text... 
Both of those views are terribly misguided. On the one hand, the Christian should absolutely care about reconciliation within the body of Christ because this is the work of Christ. This is what Christ came to do at the cross. We absolutely should look very different from the world around us because of the cross, in light of the cross of Christ. We should care deeply about that. But we also must truly understand and believe, listen to me, the reason we look different, right? The reason we look different. <clears throat> That's what Paul writes about in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. So we, we've seen in Ephesians what the good news of Jesus, who he is and what he's done, what it saves us to and what it saves us from. It saves us from sin and death, from ourselves, separation and wrath, and it saves us to, we saw last week, good works. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That was the closing verse from last week's text, and now this week's text starts, therefore, in other words, now we begin to see where and how these good works that we've been saved to, these good works that result from the gospel, actually where they begin, how they extend. It's from within a new humanity, the people of God collectively together. There's a people who together embody these good works. And there are really three ways this morning that I think we see in the text. Paul anticipates his readers will respond to what he's saying here. And that's our outline for this morning. Paul anticipates that his readers will remember, contrast, and apply. Remember, contrast, and apply. Paul wants his mostly Gentile readers in this region surrounding Ephesus to, number one, remember their pre-Christian past. Number two, contrast that pre-Christian past with their present Christian reality. And then three, apply that good news to their relationships with one another moving forward. So, remember, contrast, and apply. Three responses that we should have, Paul wants his readers to have. So let's start with remember. Remember, verses 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope. And without God in the world. Okay, so I've said before, Ephesians is structured a very particular way. Paul writes Ephesians as a book about discipleship. It's a book about Christian growth, right? So, you know, if you're here this morning and you're skeptical of the claims of Christianity, Ephesians is a great book to study. We've talked about this before, right? It's a great book to study because here you actually see what it means to be a Christian. Like, how the gospel actually shapes us. So chapters 1 through 3 are all about what the gospel is. Chapters 4 through 6 then are about how that gospel works to, to shape us, right? So if you remember in week one, I said, all the verbs in these first three chapters, which introduce us to this gospel message, like what the gospel is, the content of the gospel, all the verbs, except for one that I can find, are indicative in nature. That is to say, look, in the Bible, very broadly speaking, there are two kinds of verbs. There's indicative, which is a verb um, about what someone else has done, Right? It's already been accomplished or what someone else has to do. And there's imperative. This is a command. This is what you're supposed to do. And in these first three chapters, because it's about the gospel, and because the gospel is good news, not good advice, it's good news about what God has done, not something that we need to do. And we're going to talk about why that's the case. Because it's all about the gospel, 
All the verbs we see, all the verbs we see in these first three chapters are indicative about what has been done, except for one that we actually see right here in our text this morning. All right, here at the beginning of our section, we see one imperative in these first three chapters. The one instruction, he repeats it twice, but the one thing he tells, Paul says we need to do as we hear the gospel, okay? The one thing we need to do, the one way he calls us to respond, he says, therefore, remember, Remember, and he reiterates that command, verse 12, right? Remember, and this really does make sense, you know, of all the imperatives, of all the instructions that Paul could have used in the midst of like these realities of what Jesus has done, in the midst of this section of text where he says, look, this is not about what you're supposed to do, but rather it's about what God has done. The one instruction that really makes sense is for us to remember it. Remember what God has done. Continue to come back to it, remember, and actually, even more specifically, what Paul wants his mostly Gentile readers to remember, because right now he's speaking to Gentiles in this context, is what life was like prior to Christ, their pre-Christian past. Why? Why does he want them to remember that? Because it's not until we remember who we once were that we can come to understand why the gospel is called gospel. The word gospel in the Greek, it's euangelion. It just means good news. Good news. It's good. It's good news for the hearer. There's no way to know that it's good until we see that there's been this mighty reversal. You know? It's like imagine somebody who was guilty. They're in the prison house. Right? They're in the, they're in the slogs. They're in the prison house. And they're set free. And they're brought into the kingdom of the king. And they're made a son or a daughter. They're adopted into the king's family. Right? Um, there may come times in which their forgetfulness of their past causes them to not really fully understand or appreciate their, the reality of their present, but the more they remember what they deserved, they're guilty of this heinous crime that landed them in prison, but they were set free by the work of another, right? The more their hearts are stirred to an appreciation and a joy, right? And, and that's what's happening here. There's been this mighty reversal in the Christian life. One of many contrasts that Paul draws out for his readers, and he wants them to see really how stark the contrast is between who they once were and who they are now in Christ. So, calls upon them, remember your pre-Christian past, who they were prior to what God had done for them in Christ, and in, in so doing, he draws out five, you know, some commentators call them inadequacies or deficiencies, let's call them disadvantages. Five disadvantages that the Gentiles once had. Right? We see in all of them, actually, in one verse, verse 12. So in verse 11, Paul makes this distinction, well-known distinction in the ancient world, a distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles. Right? A distinction that brought with it all kinds of hostility and tension. Right? Um, those who are Jewish, essentially Jew and Gentile is those who are Jewish and those who are not. Those who are circumcised, part of the covenant, those who are not. Right? It's everyone those who are Jew, those who are not. But Paul says to the Gentiles, listen, remember your five, your five disadvantages, major disadvantages prior to knowing Jesus. Number one, he says, remember that you were at that time, if you look at the text, he says, separated from Christ. Separated from Christ. What does that mean? You know, like, Jesus came and Jesus came to offer them life. So in what sense were the Gentiles, was there a time in which they were separated from Jesus? Well, remember, this term Christ is a title. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's referring to a person in history, but it's also referring to a title. It's the title of Israel's Messiah, Christos, anointed one, 
Messiah, right? The one who was going to come and rescue his people. And the Gentiles were not his people if they were outside of the covenant of Israel, if they were Gentiles in the flesh, if they were uncircumcised. So they had no messianic expectation. They had no expectation of one who is to come. They're separate from Christ. And as such, number two, they're alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, which is Paul's shorthand for being outside of God's election. And think about this for a minute. Like, by being outside of the commonwealth of Israel, what this meant was... The Gentiles were isolated from relationship with God. They were isolated from God's revelation of himself. Because God comes and he discloses who he is. His name, who he is, what he intends to do to his people. But those who aren't a part of his people don't receive that disclosure. As a direct result of this, number three, they're strangers to the covenants of promise. Like they don't don't know his word and so they're strangers to the covenants of promise. They didn't realize that the weight of God's promises must fall entirely on him, that there's no possible means of doing enough or being enough for God and others to accept you because they have no part in that covenant. They don't don't see, they haven't seen what, what God's people have seen. They're strangers to it. They don't know the covenant of promise. So it shouldn't surprise us, fourthly, that they're described as having no hope because, listen, what hope could you possibly have if you believed that the means of you being in any sense justified or made right had to happen by your own efforts. Like, what kind of hope is that if we really know ourselves? What hope could you possibly have if you thought you needed to save yourself? What hope could you have apart from God? You know, this isn't simply talking about some feeling of hopelessness in society. It's talking about the reality of life without God, which is why then, fifthly, without God in the world is the closing descriptor. So, so it's a long list, actually. It's a serious list. It comes with all kinds of implications that we don't even have time to talk about. But this is what life looked like for Gentiles prior to Christ. No messianic expectation. No relationship with the living God. Cut off from his people. No realization of the promises he's given his people. And understanding that if they're to, save, if they're to in some sense be saved from their primary problem, they have to bear the weight of that themselves. No specific revelation from God or about him and therefore no hope as those living without him in the world. Again, there's, like, listen, there's no way, there's no way to fully appreciate how good the good news of Jesus is apart from remembering who we once were. You know, and this is the case for both Jews and Gentiles. If you remember from the first part, from the first part of chapter 2, and you were dead in your trespasses. He's talking to all of his readers. You were dead, Jews and Gentiles, dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were children of wrath. This is who we were. So the, so Paul's readers, again and again, what are, they, what are they supposed to do? They're called to remember their pre-Christian past. But the second response now, if, if indeed we now know God in Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, our second response to that should now be, and this is very much Paul's intent, it's to contrast that pre-Christian past with our present Christian reality. So if you look at the second response here, it's, it's to contrast. Set your eyes with me. Verses 13 through 18, and listen, in this section of text, so powerful, what we actually see is the gospel reasoning for why racism is so evil, why racial pride is so foolish, why any version of like sticking out your chest and claiming that you're so much better than others is just such 
foolishness. Here in this contrast between who the Gentiles once were, but who they are now in Jesus, we come to find the gospel grounding for reconciliation with one another in the body of Christ. And it turns out, you know what? It's not primarily based on us or our efforts. It's based on Christ's completed work at the cross. Look at verse 13. Paul starts this contrast out by saying, but now, so, so this is who you once were, but now in Christ, which is such a powerful way to begin, right? Because he said, you were at one point separated from Christ, but now in Christ Jesus, who came into history to save you, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. This is a restatement of what we read on Good Friday together. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Chapter 1, verse 7, right? Listen to me. Because there's no, there's no reconciliation possible in, among the people of God. No reconciliation possible between differences. No racial reconciliation possible between one another if we get this part wrong. Different people groups can't find the kind of unity described in this text if we get this part wrong. The fundamental problem that we had according to the scriptures was not an earthly set of social issues and reforms that needed putting right again with a call to live a certain way. But rather, our separation from a holy God because of our sin. You know, whenever we see the primary problem of the gospel in any other thing, even if it's a good thing, even if it's something that naturally flows out of the gospel, if we see that as our primary problem, we're, we're always not only going to lose the gospel in that, but we'll, we'll never end up gaining that other thing. We'll lose that too, every single time. We'll lose that gospel implication because our efforts couldn't possibly secure it, and we'll see why together. I'm a big fan of um, the ministry of the late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones pastor. He's a doctor who became a pastor in uh, England in the mid to late 1900s. And one of the things I admire the most about him is that he had this heart for evangelism. He had this heart for skeptics, to hear the word of God proclaimed, to hear the gospel, to respond by faith. And as a minister, specifically to skeptics, someone who like gave his Saturday nights to the preaching of evangelistic sermons, that skeptics could come in here and interact and, 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 and hear the word proclaimed. I'm grateful for the sharp contrast that he always drew out in the midst of criticisms that would say like, look, stop, stop all of this focus on preaching and, and really get about the business of the gospel, which is in social reform and all these other things. And he writes this, you know, his, his church really cared for the poor and needy and marginalized, but they did. But this is what he says. He says, the gospel is not merely an exposition of the Sermon on the Mount and its social application in order to make this world a better place. There are voices that would say, like, we're red-letter Christians. The gospel is really just, like, taking the, the, some, of, some of the social realities that the culture agrees with, not the ones they disagree with, from the Sermon on the Mount, and, like, making reforms along those lines. Um, but he says, men have been preaching that kind of thing for many years and trying to put it into practice. But look at the results. Look at the results. And I would implore you, like, look at the results of what happens anytime we take an implication of the gospel, something that's secondary to the gospel, something that flows out of the gospel, but we make it our primary message. Look at the results. What are they? Well, he says, okay, he says why um, the results are so bad. He says, to ask unregenerate people to live the Sermon on the Mount is mockery. They cannot do it. They cannot keep the Ten Commandments. They cannot even live up to their own moral standards. They can't. But how glibly people talk about the social application of the gospel 
and about bringing in the kingdom of God. Oh, the tragedy of it all. No, we need to be born again, to be regenerated. And the gospel offers to do that. Is Lloyd-Jones preaching like a small gospel, a truncated gospel? No, he's simply saying it's pretty important that we get the order right. We put what's primary, primary, because when we do that, what comes out of that is gospel implication. He hits the nail on the head because the second we look at something that the gospel does in us, a gospel implication, something that naturally flows from the gospel, and we say, look, look, that is the gospel. There's the gospel. Something that I need to do, a social reform that I can put into place. The second we do that, we lose it. We'll never achieve it. We'll never achieve the greatest ideals that we set out to accomplish. We'll actually get the opposite of what we claim we want. It's true. We don't have to like it, but it's the reality, and we'll kind of sit there, and we'll scratch our heads, and we'll wonder, why am I getting the opposite of what I want? I'm really trying for this over here. But that's just what happens. We want reconciliation. But if human effort is the means of obtaining it, it become, if it becomes the primary message or the means of achieving it, I promise you, you'll just get further division. I promise. Every day of the week and twice on Sunday, we will. We'll fail. And, and Paul tells us exactly why that's the case. He says it's because anytime we think we're achieving that thing on our own efforts, it becomes a dividing wall of hostility. That's precisely what divides us, the idea that we can do this. Okay, what do I mean? Well, let's look at verses 14 through 16, where Paul argues this. He says, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so by making peace and might reconcile us both to God, in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Okay, step back for a minute. How can we have reconciliation? How do the people, how do the people of God have reconciliation? What's the grounds of it? What's the only foundation for it? It's Jesus. This is the work of Christ. This is, this is his work. He himself is our peace. This idea of peace, it goes beyond a cessation of violence or hostility or you know, earthly categories of social reform. Jesus, it's what he came to do. He's called the Prince of Peace. Jesus tells his disciples in John's gospel, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. What kind of peace could Jesus offer that the world could not offer? Peace with God. Peace with God, and therefore, because we now have this peace with God, peace with one another, sure. Peace with God in a primary way that then gives us peace together. How? How does peace with God now give us peace together? By breaking down the dividing wall of hostility. What's the dividing wall of hostility, you guys? Look at the next verse. By abolishing, how did he break down the, law, the, the wall of hostility? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. The dividing wall that Paul's talking about, the thing that divided, the thing that brought hostility, is the Old Testament law. The ordinances, I believe that he's describing here, probably refer to the ceremonial law in particular. In particular, the ceremonial law that Israel had to hold to in order to differentiate themselves from surrounding nations, not the least of which was circumcision. And this law, that law brought about hostility. And you might say, well, how did the law bring hostility? Wasn't the law from God? Yes, but listen, uh, the law was intended by God to act as a mirror, in, in part, in part. One of the uses of the law was to act as a mirror through which the people of God would come to see their sinfulness, to see their need for him, and therefore understand why he had to come, 
throw themselves upon his mercy uh, because of human sin, right? But because of human sin, it created the opposite result, right? It made them boastful. It gave them a sense of superiority that we see reflected in the Pharisees of Jesus' day because look at all this that I'm doing. Look at all the law that I'm holding in order to be close to God. Look at how close I am to God. Look how far apart you are, right? Look how right I am. Look how stupid everybody else is. It's that sneering, that condescension that I was talking about earlier. Rather than being a nation that was called to bless all the nations of the world by pointing them to the hope they had in the Messiah who was to come, they used their status as the circumcised to often put a thumb in the eye of surrounding pagan nations who they deemed simply not good enough, surrounding nations would mock and despise, pridefully then attempting to redeem themselves through pagan practice, and it created hostility. And it's what has to happen when we think we can save ourselves. If I think I'm saving myself, you know, of course it leads to this kind of pride, but Jesus came to abolish this ceremonial law and establish a new covenant with his people. Because in realizing that they could never live up to God's standards or expectations, out of a deep conviction that they'd sinned against him, God's people would need to throw themselves on his mercy that he gave them at the cross. And as it turns out, as it turns out, you guys, nobody, not Jew or Gentile, could possibly save themselves or make themselves right with God and others. Nobody. And what did this do? What did it do? It created a new human, Jesus in this, created a new humanity. The gospel truth. At the cross, he created a new humanity. The two, Gentile and Jew, becoming one. Because the dividing wall of hostility came down, and as it did, we came to see, through the work of Jesus, that the playing field's been, it's been even all along. Right? Like, there's no elevated platform from which I can stand to boast and talk about how dumb everybody else is and how smart and right I am, how good I am. There's no sneering at the cross. There's no condescension at the cross. It's like if there's sneering and condescension at the cross, fundamentally you don't understand what the cross is. The playing field is totally level, and even Jesus' preaching leveled the playing field. Look at verses 17 and 18. And he came and preached what? Peace. To who? To you who are far off, Gentiles. And he preached what? Peace to who? To you who were near. Jews. Jews and Gentiles both needed the same message of peace. Why? Because they both had the same central problem. And they were both plagued by it equally. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Through him we need access to the Father. We can't find that access within ourselves. We can't find that access by following a certain amount of law or ordinances or you know, just do better. There is no created human being alive today who is better than another or who can claim by nature of who they are some superiority to another or can claim by some nature of boasting over another, you know? Because all of us share the same central problem. All of us are just as plagued by it. I think this is something that we can sometimes, as Christians, give theological assent to, like say like, you know, yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, at the same time, kind of believing that I didn't need it as bad as other people. Like, yeah, I mean, I needed it, but oh, those people, right? Something we can give theological assent to when in reality, all of us are just as plagued by it and all of us must turn to Christ as the only answer for our sin. If, listen to me, if any of us are going to be reconciled to God, all of us need to go by way of the cross. 
if you are to be reconciled to God, if I am to be reconciled to God, both of us, every human being alive, must go by way of the cross. When we turn to him, we see that the dividing wall of pride and boasting has been demolished. And when that happens, we see one another truly as brothers and sisters in Christ, rather than those people who aren't as good as I am, who haven't figured out what I figured out. So, we're to remember our pre-Christian past, contrast that with our present Christian reality, and now thirdly, apply that good news to our future Christian life, like Paul writes, so then. So there's this application, right, to an extent. There's this idea of like, this is how it changes things now. Specifically for you Gentiles, how does it change it? You are no longer strangers and aliens, Paul writes, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul uses the analogy of a building here to talk about the people of God, right? He compares us to a building. Why? Well, that brings to mind the tabernacle brings to mind the temple language of the Old Testament in which those places, those buildings, tabernacle, temple, represented the meeting place between God and man. Right? A place where God and mankind, God and humanity, could meet over the sacrifice. And Paul is saying that now the meeting place between God and humanity is in Jesus. And we can be reconciled to God forever through Christ's sacrifice and therefore reconciled to one another as fellow citizens of the same kingdom who came with the same need and the same longing, the same need to throw ourselves on the mercies of Christ, the same crying out, not one of us better than another. And listen, I'm, okay, I'm not an expert on what it looks like to grow a church that demonstrates the kind of reconciliation that this passage describes, you know? I'd say I desire it. I desire for Gospel Life Church to continue to reflect the gospel truth that we find in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. For us to be a church full of reconciled people, full of people who take seriously our present Christian reality and apply that to our relationships with one another, you know? Um, but I would also say this. I'd say the means of achieving it have far more to do with the message of the cross than a primary message that just heaps more law on God's people. Like, here's the issue, I think. The issue is we see this need for reconciliation in the church, and our primary response is to write more law to get it done, to make it the primary message, you know? And, whenever, and so what are we doing? It's like Jesus came and he tore down the dividing wall of hostility, and we build it right back up. And what happens from that? Well, look at what I'm doing. What's wrong with you? I'm, I'm actually doing what I need to do, what you need to do better. You know, that, that snide condescension starts to creep in. The pride, why? Because we think we're actually the ones doing this. We've created more law. We've made it our primary message. And hey, if it's the primary message and I'm doing a pretty good job doing it, the dividing wall goes right back up. I promise you it does. It has to. Pride flourishes from that. It confuses the gospel with the implications of the gospel. Okay, you all know, you all know how thankful I am for the ministry of um, professor at, at um, my alma mater, uh, D.A. Carson. He's getting up there in years, you guys. He's retired. He's a professor emeritus now, you know. So he, he doesn't 
uh, teach full-time. He's limiting his speaking engagements, right? Um, but whenever I get a chance to listen to him, especially now, especially at this point in his life, whenever he's doing a Q&A or making comments on something, I, I really lean forward. Um, just a few months ago, he was commenting in Australia about this important topic of reconciliation, and he said this. He said, there's a crucial point here. What place is there for petty jealousy, for resentments, for racial disharmonies, where together we stand beside the cross? Right, so we're standing beside the cross. How can you be boastful there? How can you claim to be so smart and others are so stupid? Right? How can you claim to, in some sense, you know, be so much better? Right? How, how can you have that kind of those petty resentments and racial disharmonies? He continues, though. He says, so, what do you want instead? He says, do you want a church that's full of reconciled people? And I think we would all say, yeah. Right? That's, that's, that's the desire of our heart as Christians. So he says, then do not focus on talking endlessly about reconciled people. Talk endlessly about Christ, about the gospel, about the cross, about the grace of God. The triune God has changed us. And you know, what's Carson doing? Is he preaching like a truncated small gospel? You know, no, no, he's simply saying, first things first. <laughs> because if the second, what Lewis said, if the second thing is first, you lose first and second things. You're going to lose them both. First things first. Here's the proper order. Here's the good news of Jesus. And from this flows the reality of what happens. Like Paul captured, or Carson captures Paul's message to the Ephesians. Talk endlessly about Christ. Make Christ your primary message. Make the grace of God through the cross your primary message. Don't make the implications of the gospel your primary message because then I promise you, you will lose it. You won't achieve it. You'll cut yourself off from the power that God gives you for actually seeing that thing accomplished scratching your head, wondering how it's possible. We're a young church. There's a thousand ways that we can apply reconciliation with one another. Where we can, in humility given at the cross, but boldness given at the cross, declare truth in a way that doesn't demean. Be faithful to truth in a way that is shaped by the humility that we see at the cross of Christ. And as we grow in that kind of reconciliation with one another, challenging one another with truth, but not challenging with one another, one another with truth in a way that suggests that I've arrived where others haven't. Beside the cross, there's no place for that, right? So as we grow in that, I'll say, I need to grow in that right along with you. But I'll put my flag in the ground right next to Carson's and say, my commitment to seeing this work done is through the primary proclamation of the gospel. That we might remember and apply and repeat it with one another and throughout the week and extend it to the world around us. And it's this very reason that we observe the Lord's table each week. You know, like why is gospel life? It's not, yeah, every, not every church has to do this, right? But why have we intentionally decided to do this? Why do I very much believe we should do this? Well, there are a lot of reasons. You know, concluding, concluding each sermon with the Lord's table, as one author said, make sure that, you know, I, if, if I can't, if I can't, tie my sermon into the Lord's table, then I'm probably preaching heresy, right? So it, it helps me center on the gospel of Christ, right? But we do this weekly, right? That we might remember and apply and repeat it with one another throughout the week, extend it to the world around us. That we might remember our former Christian 
past, uh, pre-Christian past, before we were Christians, that we were deserving of the wrath of God. We were deserving to have our blood poured out. We were deserving separation from God. But then instead, he stood in our place, our present Christian reality, that he stood in our place as our substitute, that we might be known by God through faith in him. And here we see, here we preach with, the, with these elements, the grounding for our communion together as a church. We see the dividing wall knocked to pieces because in order to do this together, we have to acknowledge our need of him to one another. And the playing field is leveled in real time as we lift the elements to our lips together and confess the reality of that need. And so this is a meal for believers. If you're here and you're a believer, we, we welcome you to come and receive the elements, take them back to your seats where we will partake them together and make that proclamation together. If you're not a believer, participate by way of asking questions um, and observing, but I invite you now. Come forward, take the elements back to your seats with you, and we will partake of this together.